You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning again, Creekside. Morning, it's so good to see you. Thanks for joining us. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. If it is your very first time with us, hey, happy 4th of July. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us this morning. And if it is your first time, we'd love to offer you a free gift this morning, at the info desk, you can get a sippy cup or a tumbler or a water bottle, and that is our gift to you. If you'd like more information about Creekside or if there's something I can, I can be praying, I don't, you know, we can be praying about for all of you, I'll pray for it too, but there's a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, and put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. Humans love stories. We love a good story, don't we? Stories captivate our imagination. If you get bored during my sermon today, it's probably because I'm not telling a story. And I know what you're thinking. Man, I hope he tells a story soon. We need something to break this up, right? We connect to stories, which is so interesting because so many of our stories are fairly predictable. Yeah, there are twists and turns in the plot, but... But the stories that most resonate with us, the most satisfying stories, you know, we kind of know, okay, the dragon will get killed. The boy will get the girl. Good will overcome evil. Everything sad will eventually come untrue. And yet, regardless of how many iterations of that story we hear, we never tire of hearing it. And if you're a Christian, you know why that's true. You know why that story is so deeply ingrained in us, and that's because it's our story. Uh, To be a Christian is to believe that the universe itself is charged with meaning and purpose and transcendence, which means life is not just a random collection of events. It is not what Macbeth said In Shakespeare's play, it is not a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. No, we're we're living in this cosmic drama of redemption, which means there actually is a dragon that needs to get slayed. And there actually is a bride that needs to be won and wooed. And that's why you like Avengers movies. That's why you like romantic romantic comedies, even though every rom-com has like exactly the same plot every single time. That's why you never tire of them, because those stories reflect the story. This cosmic story, which makes sense out of our individual stories. Now, the thing that makes any story interesting is what? Conflict. You have to have a compelling conflict to have an interesting story, to have a good story at all. No good story goes like this. You know, in the beginning, things were pretty good, but then they got a little bit better. The end. That's not a story. You need a compelling conflict. But today, the question I want us to consider is this. What is the conflict in the biblical story? What's the fundamental problem? Because if we don't understand the basic conflict in the biblical story, in the story, we won't understand it in our stories either. And see, if we miss the the plot, if we miss the conflict in the big story, 
we're going to be really confused about our own stories. We're going we're to pick the wrong villain in our story. We're going to fight the wrong battle in our story. We're going to trust in the wrong hero in our story. So today I want to talk about the war beneath the different battles we fight, the grand conflict in the Bible. That's what we're looking at. We're currently in this series on Genesis 1 through 11, and we've entitled it, Let's Start at the Beginning. And that title presumes that the Bible itself is a story. We're starting at the beginning because the Bible is not just a random hodgepodge of contradictory fables and laws and and rules. No, it is this seamless, unified story. One of my favorite ways of showing people this is this infographic. This is my favorite infographic that has ever been made. And this is the Bible. What you're looking at, a pastor and a computer scientist collaborated this, this is every cross-reference in the Bible. This is every time one biblical author quotes another biblical author or refers to what they've written. What you're looking at are 63,799 cross-references. No, those are explicit cross-references. It would be almost impossible to show implicit and themes and, and images that get borrowed. And what I want you to see is that the Bible isn't a hodgepodge at all. It is this conceptual unity where each author successively and self-consciously is building on one story. And as believers, we know the reason for that because all of these different authors are actually being superintended by one author who is telling us our story. And that's the creator telling us about creation. Now, if that is true, if this is the Bible, the seamless whole, then then we've got to be good story readers, don't we? Because if you don't pay very close attention at the beginning, you'll miss what's going on later on. You ever had that experience watching a movie? You get to the end of the movie and you're like, that was good, I guess. How did that resolve? And if it's a good movie, you've got to watch it again. And you go back and you see these clues and go, oh, that's right. That's why he always had his shoes untied. That would make sense, right? That's why she always coughed when she laughed. She murdered him, right? Like, now it makes sense. And we have to do the same thing when we're reading the biblical narrative because everything, every detail is deliberate. As one author has said, the the biblical writer here is planting the seeds out of which the whole tree of the Bible grows. And so we've got to pay attention. So what is the plot line of the Bible? What's the conflict that is going to happen from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21? Well, God tells us at the beginning. Here's the conflict. Verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the Bible. That's the Bible. This is the war. This is the great conflict. This is the drama that will unfold, and three things we need to see about this war. First, the chief villain. Who's the bad guy? Not the level one boss, the level ten boss in the story. Two, what's the root conflict going on? 
And three, who is the promised hero? And, and if you don't understand these, the, the villains in your life, the conflicts in your life, the hero in your life won't make any sense at all. So before we jump in, let's pray and ask God to teach us from his word. Well, Father, as our country uh, celebrates Independence Day, we do thank you for sovereignly putting us in this country. God, where you have graced us with so many freedoms. And, and God, the fact that we can gather here so effortlessly with no fear, no repercussions, God, and worship you loudly, God, that is a great grace. So we thank you for that. And Lord, we also know for as many blessings as we have that this world remains under the bondage of the evil one and that our only deliverer is you. So thank you, Jesus, for being our champion. Would you teach us now through your word? Amen. So as we look at the war beneath our battles, the great conflict in the world, let's start with the villain. We spent the last few weeks looking at sin, and we talked about the nature of sin and human rebellion against God, and, and then we talked about the consequences of sin, the fallout from the fall. And it would be easy to conclude, in light of this, that the basic conflict in the Bible is between God and humans. Humans are bad, God is good, that's the basic conflict. And there is enmity between God and humans, but there's a more fundamental conflict. There, there's another villain, a more fundamental evil, and that's the serpent. And he's the character we're going to focus on here as we begin. We saw what God says in verse 14. I'll read it again. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you have led humanity into rebellion, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, I want you to notice the contrast between the way God talks to humans and the way God talks to the snake. It's very different. Yes, God judges human sin. He says, here are the consequences of sin. Here are the ongoing consequences of sin. But God also has a discussion with humans. He also pursues humans when they hide from him. He graciously gives them clothing, as we see later in the, the chapter, to protect them. And ultimately what we see here is that God promises liberation from evil for humans, and he does none of that with the serpent. There's no conversation, no hope of redemption. There is only a curse. God says, cursed are you above all livestock in the field. Now, I don't think God is saying to the snake, you are more cursed than every other animal, as if every other animal got cursed. Now, in Hebrew, what he's saying is this, you are uniquely cursed in creation. You are cursed above any other curse. A curse is a judgment. God is declaring his verdict against the serpent, and now on his belly he shall go eating dust. So what are we to make of this? Uh, is this just an origin story of snakes? Is the presumption here snakes originally had legs and then God cursed them and they lost their legs and now they, they slither and now God's mortal enemy is, and, and humans is snakes? Now, I hate snakes. I, if you like snakes, that's fine. I hate snakes, okay? But, but that's not the point of the story. The fundamental enemy of humanity is not snakes. Now, in Scripture, animals are, are representative. You think about a little lamb, it's pure, spotless, undefiled. What is a snake in the Bible? Well, go to Leviticus 11. A snake is a symbol, it's a picture of absolute impurity. 
of opposition to God. It is a picture of the slithery, seductive nature of sin and evil. That's what this is. And as we read on in the story, it becomes clear that the snake, this is a picture of Satan. The devil, the, the arch enemy, the chief enemy of God. Now, sometimes Satan appears as a snake, sometimes as a dragon, sometimes as a sea monster, sometimes as an angel of light. But it's the same person in each case. And if you doubt that this is talking about Satan, just fast forward to the very end of the Bible, where John in the book of Revelation talks about Satan this way. He says the great dragon was thrown down. Who's the great dragon? That ancient serpent. Who's the ancient serpent? The one called the devil and Satan. See, Revelation's clear, guys. Revelation's confusing. There you go. It's clear. The ancient serpent. It's Satan. It's that guy. It's the devil. John makes it plain. That, that is the enemy. And what God promises here to the serpent is no redemption, just destruction. There's no hope. That's what God means when he says, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. See, the Bible is not primarily concerned here with, with providing an explanation about why snakes slither. This is symbolic. In the Old Testament, if you look at that phrase, eating the dust, what does it mean to eat the dust? It means to suffer complete defeat. Abject humiliation. That's what it means to eat the dust. And the serpent will suffer complete humiliation all the days of his life. Meaning what? In perpetuity, the serpent will be defeated forever. There is no redemption. Apparently, this creature is unredeemable, dead set against God, and the prophet Isaiah drives this home. In chapter 65 of Isaiah's prophecy, he gives us this preview of coming attractions of what the world will look like when God makes all things new. And his description is very interesting. He says this, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, this is this amazing picture where apparently like animals are even getting along better than they were before. I don't know how that works exactly. But all of creation is being reconciled together, and yet the serpent is still eating what? The dust. He is defeated completely. And that gives us a profound insight into the primary villain in the biblical story. Notice, God is announcing this conflict that's coming, and it's a conflict coming between the seed of the woman and the seed of the devil. Now, the seed of the woman is physical offspring from Eve, humans. The seed of the devil isn't more snakes. It's his spiritual descendants, that, that Satan will try to gain a foothold in humans and twist them and manipulate them for his purposes to advance his kingdom against the kingdom of God, which means that all the wars humans fight are just proxy wars for this greater war between God and the devil. And what's so interesting, and this is pay attention because it's all at the beginning, when we start looking at the big villains in the biblical story, do you know what we always find? There's a villain behind the villain. In every case, there's a villain behind the villain. Think about Cain, right? Eve gives birth to two boys, Cain and Abel. She assumes Abel's the seed of the woman. Here's the hope. But then she has this other kid, Cain, and sin takes control of Cain. He's filled with jealousy for his brother. We'll see this in a few weeks. And he kills Abel. Now, here's what's interesting. You fast forward to the New Testament, 
And Jesus talks about Satan this way. Listen. That he was a murderer from the beginning. Now, he's not talking about Cain. He's talking about Satan. He says the evil one is a murderer from the beginning. But how do we know he's a murderer from the beginning? Well, what did Satan do right after the fall? He incited Cain to murder. John makes it even more clear in 1 John 3 when he says, we should not be like Cain who was of, who was of the seed of who? The evil one. So you have Cain against evil. What's happening here? It's actually the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent waging war. Fast forward to the story. God's people are in Egypt. They're sojourning there. They're rapidly multiplying. The seed of the woman, God's people are flourishing, but then Pharaoh gets threatened. Pharaoh is scared that these people are a threat. And so what does Pharaoh say? Come, let us deal, and you can underline it in your Bibles, shrewdly with them. Lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And we know what happens next. Pharaoh attacks the seed of the woman. Why? By trying to kill every firstborn Hebrew boy. So, we're trying to destroy God's plan and the woman's seed. You can see how closely they're linked. But notice the description. It says that Pharaoh deals shrewdly. Remember where that word shows up in Genesis 3? Now, the serpent was more shrewd, more crafty than any other creature. It's the exact same word. Here's the point. The author's tipping us off. This shrewdness of Pharaoh, we know who's behind it. Exodus is not Pharaoh versus Moses. It's God versus the evil one. And this is the proxy war. Fast forward. Later in Israel's history, God raises up another seed, a king for his people, David, a man after God's own heart. And David is clearly the dude. He is the king who is to rule Israel. And we know the showdown, right? It's David versus Goliath. Goliath's a really bad guy. He's not the ultimate bad guy in the story. He's not the level 10 boss. He's just the level 1 boss. Because look, look at how he's described. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with, literally in Hebrew, a coat of scales. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. A bronze scaly monster is how Goliath is portrayed. So who's behind Goliath? There's a more evil Goliath. It's the serpent rearing its head again. That battle in the valley is not David versus Goliath. It's the true God versus Satan. And you see how this battle gets recapitulated and reiterated throughout the storyline of Scripture. And so as Christians, we have an understanding of just how deep the battle rages because the ultimate root is spiritual. We, we know why governments can be incredibly wicked. Daniel 7 tells us why. That out of the chaos, these monsters come. And he's talking about demons and Satan who control human governments to oppress and do wickedness. Revelation says the exact same thing. You think Rome's bad, look at who's behind Rome. It's the monster, it's the dragon, right? There's always a villain behind the villain. And so as believers, we should not be shocked by widespread systemic injustice or wickedness or corruption because the problem is deeper than any human diagnosis. It's not something you can solve just with social progress or therapy or education. It's a spiritual war going on. And all of these things are proxy Wars. Now, here's the implication for us, and it's very important. All of us like to pick villains in our lives. All of us. My spouse is the problem. My boss is the problem. 
That party's the problem. Those people are the problem. And the truth is they are. They're problematic. They're evil. They're wicked. But they're just the level one villain. The level 10 boss is who is behind any human wickedness. This is Satan producing his offspring in the world. And we've got to get the villain right. That is the ultimate villain, and it changes the way we look at people. Because here's why. An enemy, in the purest sense, is someone who's not redeemable. Right? In the purest sense, an enemy is someone who's beyond redemption. They are only wicked, they are only evil, they are only in opposition, therefore the only thing they can be is what? Devoted to destruction. They have to lose, I have to win. That's an enemy. But the Bible only describes one enemy that way, and it's the evil one. It's Satan, and humans are the battlefield on which this cosmic war is taking place. But as Christians, our presumption, our hope is that God can save and redeem anyone. And so ultimately, we have to get the enemy right, and that will keep us from what? Demonizing people. From treating them, flesh and blood, like the ultimate wickedness. Let me, let me make this really practical. In your marriage, if you're married, you can view your spouse as an enemy. And you think, you know, basically, here's, here's how our marriage works out. Like, we've both got issues, both got issues, but it's like 15% me. And it's about 85% them. And I've owned my 15%, all of it, like 14.95% of it, I've owned. But they've got this 85%, they've owned almost none of it. And like, for our marriage to get 85% better, they've got to own that. I've done all I can. I know you haven't thought that way. But, but that's the presumption, is that if they just got their act together. Now, if you're a Christian, here's the thing. I was thinking about this today. You know, there's actually four parties in your marriage. Four. I, I thought there were three, but then I'm like, nope, there's four. There's you. There's your spouse. There's Jesus. And then there's the devil. And the devil hates your marriage. He hates you too, Okay. And he hates your spouse. And, and he is conniving to ruin your marriage all the time. All the time. The first thing Satan wages war on in Genesis 3 is a marriage. Sowing division and distrust and deception. Let me tell you how that changes the way you're going you're to approach your next marital conflict. Instead of just going, this is the problem, this is the problem, that you both take a step back and go, wait a minute, the fourth guy... <laughs> Level 10 boss. He is sowing this. He wants us to be divided. He's out to disrupt our union. That doesn't fix the problem, but it changes the way you address it, doesn't it? Because now you've got to start praying. You've got to start praying for spiritual protection because there's a scheming evil one who's smarter than you, who's trying to undermine you all the time. Do you see how that changes the way you approach issues in your life? The way you approach villains in your life, there's a level 10 boss always behind him. That's who we wage war against, and that gets to the conflict in the story. Changes the villain we pick, it changes the way we engage in conflict as well. Here's the root conflict. God says this, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. Who puts enmity in this relationship? Who does it? God. He says, I will do it. God sovereignly creates enmity. And you go, why did God do that? It's an act of grace that God would put enmity. Here's what God's doing. 
When humanity rebels against God, they are declaring in that moment, whose team are they on? <laughs> team serpent, right? We're on team Satan. We throw in our lot in him against God. God is out to redeem humanity. He won't let that state of affairs continue. He won't just let humanity go blindly off into the kingdom of darkness and perish. He will redeem. And so what does he create? A fundamental conflict. And I think this is a picture of God's common grace that because of God's restraining influence on our conscience, we are not as wicked as we could be. That we have this sense of enmity that yes, there is good. Yes, there is evil. We can't go whole hog towards evil. As distorted as our picture of good and evil might be, there is some semblance of a conscience. The Bible never says that humans are as wicked as they possibly could be. It says we are capable of unimaginable wickedness, that we are totally incapable of saving ourselves, but God's restraining grace creates a conflict in us. That there's, that there's enmity, that there is good, that there is evil, and so we won't just give full vent to evil. There is this fundamental enmity. Why? Because humanity is a proxy war for God and Satan. And we are being fought over. The forces of good, the forces of darkness. Now, that's the conflict we see in the Bible. We sense enmity, but here's the reality that the Bible shows us. The minute you sign up to be on Team Jesus officially, here's the thing, whether you know it or not, before you are part of Team Jesus, you live in the kingdom of darkness, the Bible says. And this world is under the thrall, under the power of the evil one. And so the minute you declare for King Jesus, you are officially changing teams. Here's the great thing about that. You get peace with who? God. Amazing fellowship with your creator. Here's the bad news. You get enmity with who? <laughs> Satan. When you do that, you picked your friend and you picked your enemy. And so now, any enmity you felt before, now magnify it a thousand times because you've got a target on your back. You are officially, as John says in 1 John 3, you have God's seed in you. You are changed into a new creature. You can't just go on blindly sinning, unconsciously sinning. You know you need to keep following Jesus and keep repenting, and Satan will do anything to derail you, anything. He hates you. And now he is out to get you. That is the conflict, the basic conflict for Christians. That's it. That's why, you know, I've heard this story so many times. People become Christians and their life gets worse. I was like, Jeff, I, you know, I became a Christian and I lost my job and I lost my, my wife left me and this is awful. And I go, exactly, because you're on a different team. Now there's real conflict. There's real struggle. Because you've got a target. This is exactly what the Bible says. Ephesians 6, you know it. We do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan, his demonic servants, that's the war. That's the war. And you have a target on your back if you're on Team Jesus. And what you see throughout the Bible is this. Satan tempts, God tests. Satan tempts, God tests. Satan will do anything. He'll bring disaster, distraction, disease, death, despair, lots of Ds, division, deception. I can keep going. He'll bring them all into your life to tempt you to switch teams or to throw in the towel. 
He knows he can't destroy you because you're Jesus, but he'll try to derail you. And, and so that, at the same time, God is providentially using that to grow you in your resistance to Satan. Because remember God's creation plan, he wants humans to rule the world and subdue it and become the kind of people who can rule this world. And we do it how? By facing the enemy, by defeating him in spiritual combat and growing into the kinds of people who can pass a test. Right? So God has a good plan in all of this hardship, but this explains why your life is hard at a profound level because Satan is warring against you. And here's the thing, we need to be prepared. That's the implication. Are you prepared? As you're going into this week, are you prepared? Look at verse 11 and what it says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I love that word schemes. Do you know what a scheme is? It's a method. It's a strategy. You ever realize that Satan's thinking about you? And he knows all of your weaknesses? And he's making a plan right now. That's a strategy. A lot of you like to plan for your week, right? You're planning for your week today. Uh, Satan's planning for your week. He's got a scheme. Verse 13 goes on to say that there's a, a demonic attack coming and it will happen on the evil day. That's when you need to stand. There's a day coming. If you're a believer, there's going to be lots of them in your life, but it's an evil day. It's a day when the attack comes. When the disaster comes, when the temptation comes, when the doubt comes, and that is planted by the evil one to derail you, so you have to be prepared. If you're a boomer, you probably got the four spiritual laws, that gospel presentation. You know, law one, right? God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. I always wanted to add to that one and say, and Satan hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. (laughs) That's it. He's got a terrible plan. So are you prepared? Because I think so often the way we view hardship in life is like just, oh man, all this stuff happened. It was so hard. Why does this keep happening? Now you know at some level why it's happening. You've got an enemy. Do you approach the week like you're going into battle? You're not going on a leisurely drive through the country. You're going into rush hour traffic on I-5 in LA with a bunch of crazies that are trying to run you over. That's the week, spiritually, that's coming. So are you planning? Because I think the problem we get into, I do this all the time, I expect everything to go according to plan in my life. After all, I made a plan, everything's got to go. Like, so for instance, right, I'm going on vacation right after this. Like, I'm trying to get through this sermon, I love you, but I want to be done because I want to be on vacation. And I am getting on a flight, I am flying to see my family, And let me tell you my expectation of how this day is going to go. Well. (laughs) Well, it's going to go great. I'm going to get to the airport. Nothing's going to be delayed. (laughs) Nothing. I'm going to get there. There's going to be no COVID weirdness, no stupid stuff to deal with. I'm going to go breathe through TSA. I'm going to pick up the book I've been trying to read for four weeks. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to enjoy it. And then I'm going to get on a plane. That plane's going to be empty because it's the 4th of July. See, I planned this. Uh, I'm going to get on, and you know what's going to happen? No one's going to sit next to me. No one. No one will sit next to me, and no one will ask me, what do you do for a living? No one will want to talk about Jesus. No one will want to say, you know, the American church has a lot of problems I want to talk about right now. What do you think? You know, no one's going to do that. They're going to leave me alone. I'm going to get into Texas. My wife's going to be there on time. The kids will be in bed. 
she'll have my dinner. She doesn't know that yet, that I want dinner, when she, but she's gonna, she, she already knew ahead of time. That I'm, I'm, dinner will be there. She's gonna give me a kiss. She's gonna be so happy. I'm gonna get home. The kids will be asleep. Oh, it's gonna be a great day, guys. Isn't it gonna be a great day? It's gonna be a great day. Woo. Do you ever think that way? That is not the way you think if life's a battle. You go, oh, of course things were delayed. Of course I got put next to the plane next to like the village atheist who hates me <laughs> and just wants to argue things into the ground. Of course. Of course. Of course my kids are up when I get there, right? Of course. Are you planning? Here's the question to ask. What test is coming this week? Start thinking. Don't be reactive. Be proactive. What test is coming? Because a test is coming. Satan's preparing an evil day. How are you going to stand? Where are your areas of weakness? This is when I give in to lust. This is when I give in to anger. This is when I give in to anxiety. This is when I give in to slander and gossip. And here's the thing. He's got you already on an imperceptible path to get you to that place to trip you up. He's good at what he does. He's good at being bad. And so are you ready? Are you making that preparation? So that's the conflict that awaits us. That's the villain. Where's the hope? And you know the answer, but it's really important we see where the hope is because uh, it's really easy to make heroes out of humans. And they all have clay feet except for Jesus. Here's the promise. He shall bruise your head, head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan makes this promise, I'm sorry, God makes this promise to Satan right from the very beginning that a seed of the woman, an offspring is coming and there's going to be a fight and the seed, whatever, whoever the seed is, they're going to get their heel bruised. Now that's not insignificant. Think about blowing out an Achilles and not being able to walk. That's, that's getting your heel bruised. It's a, it's a serious injury, but better to lose a heel than a head. And in this fight, the seed is ultimately, as Romans 16 says, is going to trample the serpent underneath our feet. That's what's coming. That's the hope. This is called the first gospel, theologians call it, because it's the first good news, and it's the hope that the entire Bible is just charged with anticipation for. And I think Adam knew how hopeful this was because of what he does right after this says the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. I think that's a sign that Adam believed the promise that God was going to bring life out of death. Here's why. Adam named Eve in chapter 2. Remember, the first name is woman taken from man. That's Eve's origin story. So he names his wife according to her origin. Now he names his wife according to her destiny. And the destiny will be that out of all this death, a seed will come from you that brings a life that swallows up death. Now, the rest of the biblical drama is caught up with this question of who will the seed be? Who's the seed that crushes the serpent? And see, throughout the story, story Satan is bearing spiritual offspring. God's bearing offspring. And so we go, okay, well, who's the seed? Is it Abel? Is it, is it, is it Eve's first child? Well, no, it's not him. He gets killed and Cain, Oof, that's the seed of Satan right there. 
There's no hope there. Was it Seth? No, it's, it's not. And, 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 and Satan keeps spawning new spiritual seed, and wickedness multiplies, and things almost get out of control. And then, then we get to Genesis 12, and God calls Abraham and his family and says, through your seed, the, all the nations will be blessed. You go, yes, it's going to be Abraham's family. God's going to use them to redeem the world. And then you look at Abraham's family and go, man, Abraham is not the hope of the world. Isaac is not the hope of the world. Jacob is definitely not the hope of the world. And so you go, well, where is this seed going to come from? It can't just be Abraham's family. And so then Jacob has 12 sons and one of them is Judah. And God makes this promise in Genesis 48 that Judah, someone from that tribe, the tribe of Judah, that they will reign over the world and trample their enemies under their feet. So maybe it's the seed of Judah. Maybe this is where God's going to act. Uh, but Judah was a messed up dude, and Judah is a messed up tribe. And so we're still wondering, well, who can rule the world? And so God says, I'm going to make it clear. I'm going to consolidate this nation, Israel, and I'm going to raise up Moses, and there's going to bring deliverance. But it's clear Moses isn't the guy either. He can't even enter the promised land. And so we're still waiting. Well, then who is the seed? And then God says, I'm going to raise up a king. And it's going to be a king after my own heart. And through that king, I will rule. And so now we're saying, yes, the seed is a royal son. And David is raised up. We go, that's the guy. That's the guy. And you know what happens? Bathsheba, Uriah, he's an adulterer and a murderer. And at the end of his life, he takes this census. And if you look at the context, it's incredibly wicked what he does. And Satan filled his heart to do it, the Bible says. So even the seed up to that point has a lot of Satan in him still. And now we're left as the kingdom dissolves and divides, wondering who will the seed be. And we know it's going to come from the line of Judah, and the line of Judah almost gets destroyed. And God has to preserve it. Why? Because he's always preserving the seed of the woman from the seed of the serpent and preserving it until there's only one, and it's Jesus. Notice it's the seed of the woman. So often in the Old Testament, it's the seed of the man. It's, it's men passing down the seed, men passing down the line. It's the seed of the woman. Why? Because the woman will carry redemption. But the redemption won't be from Adam's line because Adam is hopelessly corrupted. The woman will carry redemption, but the son to be born is from God himself. It's God, it's the heaven, Adam from heaven from above who comes and ultimately, the one who is the seed of the woman who passes every test that we fail. And he's the only hero. Now, I'm almost done. Here's what that means. You know, if you look at the biblical story, everyone they hoped in before Jesus was a disappointment. You know what that means for the church today? Anyone you hope in other than Jesus will be a disappointment. <laughs> there is way too much Christian celebrity right now. I'm just going to say it. Celebrity is perilous, and here's the problem in the church right now, is that we have guys who, because of their charisma, can build a platform, and their charisma outpaces their character. And so they build huge followings. Guess what? They have huge sin issues and character defects, and we should not be shocked looking at all the leaders in the Old Testament. Don't put your trust in celebrities. We are all screwed up. Every Christian leader. There's only one hero, and it's Jesus. He's the only one who passes the test. He's the only one who bats a thousand. He's the only one who can defeat death. Hebrews says it like this. 
God of God, light of light, Jesus comes down and since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, took on our humanity, that through death he might destroy, crush the head of the one with the power of death, the devil, and deliver us who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus takes our humanity, he fights the battle against Satan, he takes that battle with Satan all the way to the cross, and that's where Satan thinks he got him, right? He thinks that's it, and the serpent lashes out at Jesus on the cross and grabs his heel. And then Jesus says, watch this, shakes the serpent off and crushes his head in the resurrection. And now we get that victory and are no longer subject to the kingdom of darkness. Here's what that means for you if you're investigating Jesus. There are two seeds, two spiritual seeds, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ and his offspring, and the seed of the serpent. There is no neutrality among humanity. We are the battleground. We're the battleground. There's no Switzerland in humanity. You just remain neutral all the time. Remain neutral. No. Ultimately, there is the kingdom of darkness. There is the kingdom of light. And if you want to be delivered from evil, you have to pick a side. And you have to say, Jesus, I believe that you are the champion, you alone. Thank you for delivering me through your death and resurrection. But you've got to pick. There is ultimately only two sides. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being the champion, Lord, the only one who doesn't fail us, the only one who is totally true and faithful, the one who embodies what humanity is supposed to be, subduing evil, crushing the serpent, establishing justice and peace. That is you, and only you. So would we be ready to wage war this week, God, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, through prayer, through your word, being ready for the battle, Lord, because it's the battle that grows us to be like you. Thank you, Jesus. You've already fought the great victory for us. You've already won it. And so that we fight from victory, not for it. And that we're totally secure in that victory. We praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.